0: are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg.
1: Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com.
0: Today's teaching text is from John chapter eight. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Praise be the word of the Lord.
1: So if we just go to uh, this photo, please. There we go. This is uh, Count Nicholas Ludwin von Zinzendorf. That's his actual name and it is the most German name I've ever heard in my life. Um, When he was 22, a band of poor refugees who were being oppressed in their homeland wandered across his family's property, fleeing on foot. And in an attempt to welcome the stranger like Jesus, he chopped up the family estate into 32 distinct lots and allowed every one of these refugees to settle on his property. They named the small village Hernhunt, which means the Lord's Watch, And they had this wide-eyed vision of a heavenly community on the earth where a bunch of foreigners would live together who only had Jesus in common. Now, fast forward a few years into that vision, and all of those holy dreams proved to be much more complicated than they originally thought. That, in my experience, is the problem with the dreams you have in your early 20s. This community really did want to be a sliver of heaven on the earth, but they were also people. They were particular, annoying, flaky, disappointing, different people. And then on August 13th, 1727, they acknowledged that without the intervention of God, their whole dream was dead in the water. And so 48 people, 24 men and 24 women, made a covenant together that they would each take an hour a day and they would pray around the clock for God's intervention in their lives in their tiny little village. A group of refugees started praying like monks. That is where we're headed today. We're starting this two week teaching series titled Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. This is the praying like monks bit. Next week, we'll get to the foolish part. But this week, we want to talk about praying like monks, which actually has everything to do with Jesus' encounter with this woman in John chapter 8. So I just want to begin with this question today. What do you think it actually feels like to be stoned to death? Have you ever thought about that? Because I'm guessing she was. I mean, a few minutes ago, this woman was so carefree and alive. She was smiling and hurrying from her house to his. The kids were off at school. Her husband was at work. It's the early afternoon, and she's going where she always goes to be with him, the place that she feels alive again, the way that she used to. And then her priest walked in the priest that watched her grow up and heard all of her confessions and he grabbed her out of her bed and he marched her through the city with her hair in his hand and threw her down at the at the town square and said moses says to stone her are you going to disagree with moses and he's talking to Jesus, this renegade rabbi who's shown up at the temple to teach again today, and she's laying there wrapped in nothing but a, she- a sheet, her face pressed against the dirt of the ground where he threw her. The carefree thrill of a few minutes ago has suddenly been replaced by a heavy blanket of public shame. How long has he known? And who else knows? What does it feel like when they actually stone you? That's a question she never thought she'd really consider. And Jesus says something back to this priest, but she can't make out the words because the sound of her own thoughts is so loud inside her head. And then she flinches when she hears the first rock. And it's followed by another and another. They're dropping the rocks instead of throwing them. And then Jesus stands this woman up all of her accusers gone and she's looking into the eyes of love and love only and he says then neither do i condemn you go now and leave your life of sin that's who god is that's who god is But of course, the the real fight of this woman's life has only just begun. I think the real fight is every day after this one. It's all of the ordinary days that are going to follow the one extraordinary day when she was washed by God's unconditional love in such a profound way that it stood her up on her own two feet from a place of shame. And the reason the real fight always starts after the climactic moment is because of something that we all know and universally agree on, but are typically afraid to say out loud. And it goes something like this. Fidelity is boring. Right? I mean, fidelity is rich and satisfying, and it meets the deep needs of the human soul in a way that our surface-level urges never could, but it's also boring most of the time. Every single time Kirsten and I have done uh, premarital counseling for an engaged couple in this church, we always say this to them, everyone else in your life is helping you plan for a party. We are the people in your life that will help you plan for your life after the party is over. If you're a marriage mentor in this church, you're free to use that line. It's pretty good. You know it, and so do I. But it's way more fun to plan for the party because fidelity is the boring part. I mean, Jesus surprises people with a sort of mercy that sounded so cliché until it came and found me, and it found me right here, and it found me in the midst of this. And when that happens, suddenly all those cliché ideas plunge deep into my life, and I get remade, and a passion awakens in me, and there's longing and joy and hope. It's incredible. It's an, I'll never be the same sort of passion. It stands us up on our own two feet from wherever we were laying in the dirt. I can't believe that I've gone so many days without this. And then somewhere along the way, that initial passion just wears thin. And that leaves us with a few bad options for the remainder of our life of faith. Go through the motions, passionless and half pretending or obsess about recapturing that thing I had at first, even if I have to manufacture it, even if I have to manipulate myself on some level, or wander away disappointed, admitting that intimacy with God somehow did not deliver in the end, that it left me unsatisfied, so I guess I'll go looking somewhere else. See, we tend to obsess about a whole bunch of measures for spirituality, but I think that boredom is the best way to take your own spiritual temperature. And I would guess that if there was some way to measure it, and we were to get metrics on the state of the internal spirituality of most people in this room, the most common state we would find is a general sense of spiritual boredom. I mean, I can't just walk away because I do have this woman-caught-in-adultery sort of moment in my past, but also the many days after that passionate encounter, the fidelity, I'm finding much more boring. Now, it's at that place that the common life script of modern Western culture comes into play. Because we have this life script that says the pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself will satisfy your boredom. But the progress of our culture basically boils down to just many more options for curing boredom, many more distractions that could make today bearable. And that massive menu of varieties for distraction consistently overpromises and under delivers. Here's success for your need to matter, here's sexual liberation for your need to be desired, here's adventure to cure your FOMO, and all of it scratches the itch for just a moment, right? And then it's back to the same thing. And so here we sit on a day like this one and we are busy and bored at the same time. We are spiritually bored, but we're also consistently distracted and in a perpetual state of exhaustion. Welcome to the spiritual condition of the modern Western world. Now, I think that we prefer to think of ourselves as modern people with modern problems, but the truth is that fidelity is the oldest problem in human history. Fidelity is actually the oldest and truest story. It is the central theme of the whole of the biblical narrative. And the biblical antidote offered for boring fidelity is this, we love because he first loved us. That's First John chapter 4. Love for God always starts with the love of God. So the Bible is not actually a rule book or a set of directions, it is a love story. It is a romantic, courageous love story that you're offered and then asked to believe. And we can see that whole story captured if we just zoom in on a single scene, like a woman caught in adultery, but we can see the story just as beautifully if we'd step back and take in the whole thing from the one who painted the cosmos across the sky. So let's try that approach for a second. Here is the love story of the scripture. It begins with creation. We're all the way back at the beginning of the story in Genesis, after that poetic part where God separates light from dark and land from sea and he fills the earth. He walks Adam through a pretty strange exercise. He parades every animal species in front of him, one by one, instructing him to name them. Why? Why in the middle of a beautiful poem does God stop after creating everything else before he adds even to the mix to have Adam name every animal species? I think it's because he's created man and woman in his own image, and so he gives us the experience of his desire, the longing for a mate, for a counterpart, for a bride in the language of the New Testament. And so after he's let Adam feel his true state, his incompleteness, his longing for the intimacy of love, he creates woman out of man, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, a counterpart, a bride. But of course, fidelity is boring. <laughs> And so it doesn't take long for poetry to become a slog of ordinary days and for Adam and Eve to choose lesser loves. And then this whole scene gets ripped right into the middle of the story, destroying the intimacy, broken intimacy with God, broken intimacy with one another. Skip ahead a few chapters and you'll come to Abraham. God doesn't give up. He just keeps on coming. He selects a single family, Abraham and Sarah, and he makes a covenant with them. I love you and I'm gonna keep loving you no matter what. So this is not mutual, I'm not striking a deal with you, I'm making a promise. And all I'm asking is that you accept it, that you take my love. And then in Genesis 15 we read this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So receiving that love equals righteousness on God's scale. Jump ahead to the life of Jesus, and these details should sound familiar. God wants to redeem intimacy, so he places his divine being in the womb of a woman. God created woman out of man, and then God creates the God-man out of woman. God becomes bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And then here's Jesus' message straight from his mouth. This is John chapter 6. The work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. Abraham believed, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Jesus shows up with this message, just take my love. I've not come to strike a deal, I've come to make a promise. Will you just receive it? Will you have the courage to believe the story that I'm telling Picture this, picture a a married couple standing face to face in their apartment and the wife is in a tirade, she is screaming right in the face of the husband, tears streaming down her face, throwing things around the apartment, I don't love you anymore, I cheated on you, I'm still cheating on you, I felt bad about it at first, now I've just settled in as normal, I've broken every vow I ever made to you, you can't love me anymore. And the husband just calmly looking her in the face, tears running down his cheeks saying, I already forgive you. I'll never stop loving you. I already forgive you. I'll never stop loving you. That is the mission of Jesus. The wound opened up by infidelity, mended by a love that will not give up. And so Jesus says on the final night to his followers, I have loved you to the end now remain in my love fidelity come and stay here come and root your life here revelation the end of the story is a wedding feast the biblical picture of the end is not a catastrophic apocalypse it's a wedding feast it is the return of jesus the bridegroom to forever live with his bride we love because he first loved us love for god always begins with receiving more and more and more of the love of God but what on earth does all of that have to do with a village of refugees who started praying like monks fantastic question everything that has everything to do with prayer because how do we remain in that love How do we make that kind of love the backdrop setting where the scene of our lives plays out? Prayer. Because prayer is about love. The author Johannes Hartle says it this way, If you can't love, you can't pray either. Praying is loving, and learning to pray means learning to love. See, prayer is how we center ourselves on God the way he first centered himself on us. It's how we swim in his affection for us. When I was 17, a uh, senior in high school, there was this park midway between my school and my house. And so often driving home, I would stop in this park called Philippi Park, and I would just wander around the trails of this park in totally agenda conversation with God. And a lot of you know my story. You know all the stories about like prayer walks of middle school revival and intense early morning routines and all of that stuff. But I actually think that those walks were probably God's favorites because we waste time with the ones that we love. And I would walk around that park and and I wasn't actually trying to get God to do anything I thought he should be doing. And I wasn't even asking God to like mend or fill the places within me that felt incomplete. I just liked God. And so I wanted to spend time with Him. I wanted to waste time with Him because I love Him. And it would be fair to say I was a bit of a strange kid. <laughs> this other memory came back to me this week, a uh, Saturday morning last spring. It was in late March. And it was at the end of this long period of fasting, which I've also shared here about. Suffice it to say, I had been in an intense season of pursuing God. But this one morning, just when that time had ended, um, I remember waking up. It was a Saturday morning. My wife and kids were sleeping longer than usual. And so I was just having a cup of coffee on a slow Saturday morning. And I just decided to go up to my roof and sit and talk with God while I watched the city wake up. And this week, that memory rushed back into my mind. And I know how cheesy this is going to sound, but this is my actual life, so just be gentle. Uh, I just heard God whisper to me, that was my favorite part. Of all of the fasting and all of the intensity and all of the visions and all the dreams, that prayer without a point. That was my favorite conversation we shared. Henry Nouwen writes this, Prayer does not mean much when we undertake it only as an attempt to influence God or as a search for a spiritual fallout shelter or as an offering of comfort in stress-filled times. Prayer is the act by which we divest ourselves of all false belongings and become free to belong to God and God alone. So before prayer is about power or outcomes or heavenly armies or a righteous uprising, prayer is about love. It's the way that we choose God who freely chose us first. It's the way that we express our hearts to the God who despite everything delights in us. It's the way we receive from God who has endless stamina for offering himself to people that prefer clenched fists and self-sufficiency and tightened jaws. Teach us to pray. Jesus' disciples said that to him once. At least once, actually. Once that we definitely know about. And it seems to me that prayer is what people notice most about Jesus. The thing they notice more than anything else. Prayer is that aspect of his life that the world was most jealous for. And so it didn't take the disciples long to see that Jesus had something in prayer that they wanted. Teach us to pray. But when they asked him that, They were asking a loaded question. Because watching Jesus pray was kind of like watching the final scene from The Notebook. You know the one. The old couple in the hospital room, beds next to each other. Everyone who has ever seen that movie wants that. Wants to arrive at the end like that. But there's also a reason that the director of that movie chose only to include the years of passionate pursuit and then the fruit of love at the end. Because the decades of fidelity that give you that are relatively boring. But when you see the fruit of it, everyone looks at it and says, that's better than anything I've got. I want that. And that's what the disciples saw when Jesus prayed. They saw a relationship he had with God and said, that's better than anything I've got. So tell me how to live my days right now that will lead to that, because I want that. And Jesus responds with this thing that we know of as the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. Now, everyone's probably heard this prayer before. It doesn't matter if it's your first time in a a church building or if you've been doing this thing for a long time. Everyone's heard this prayer. It's the, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That one. And that prayer was scandalous in its intimacy. Jesus is making a prayer so intimate that it made the priests uncomfortable. But Jesus was also doing something that was really obvious to them, but I think it's lost on most of us, and it's this. The Lord's prayer was not entirely original to Jesus. It wasn't something he was just rattling off completely spontaneously. I mean, it certainly seems like Jesus was adapting the opening lines of the Kaddish, which is one of the three important prayers recited in the Jewish temple. The opening lines of that prayer go like this. Just look at them side by side. Magnified and hallowed be thy great name in this world, which he created according to his will, and may he establish his kingdom during your life. Now look, if Jesus is trying to be original, I'm just saying that's plagiarism in college. So this is fascinating, right? That Jesus is adapting a common, disciplined Hebrew prayer from the temple and making it much, 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 much more personal for personal people in search of a personal God. Teach us to pray. And Jesus responds, pray to God more intimately than you think you're allowed to because this is about love. And... Center your life according to a disciplined rhythm of prayer because fidelity is where the real treasures are found. Jesus was saying, if you want to know my secret, here's my secret. Pray with the heart of a lover and the discipline of a monk. That's how you choose fidelity. And when you do, it quenches your desires in such a satisfying way that everything else becomes the boring part. Jesus was saying, pray like a bunch of wild, unruly Monks. Pray like monks. That's basically the drum that Christian history has always been beating. In the Hebrew tradition, the very roots of the Christian faith, there has always been a daily prayer rhythm. Pause to pray three times a day. Morning, midday, and evening. This is the central plot point of the book of Daniel. The lion's den guy. The whole reason he gets thrown into a lion's den is because he refuses to stop praying to Yahweh by living in a Babylonian culture. He kneels in front of his window, faces the temple three times a day, morning, midday, and evening. Read the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, and you'll come to this, Psalm 55. As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. The psalmist were the original monks. Jesus himself observed a daily prayer rhythm. Every single gospel contains descriptions of Jesus withdrawing for set times of prayer. But Luke seems to be the gospel writer most interested in this. The gospel of Luke contains more scenes of Jesus in prayer than the other three combined. So it's important to note that not every reference to Jesus in prayer was planned according to a fixed daily rhythm. For instance, it was not temple custom to stay up all night on moonlit prayer hikes. So Jesus did pray spontaneously. That was a part of his relationship with God. But it is equally important to note that Jesus lived according to a fixed daily prayer rhythm. The overwhelming historical evidence reveals that Jesus went to, the prayer, or went to the temple three times a day to observe the same morning, midday, and evening prayers common to Daniel and that we read about in the Psalms. And many biblical references to Jesus in prayer fall into that category as well. To summarize, Jesus himself prayed like a wild, unruly monk. And the early church, whose shared life together we are still obsessing over and trying to recapture, they lived by a daily prayer rhythm. Just turn to the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 3 says this. One day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. Acts chapter 10. At, At about noon the following day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. Acts chapter four, on their release, meaning the release from trial, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Have you ever wondered how the apostles keep on gathering the whole church for prayer in the midst of a massive city at a time before cell phones? The most likely explanation is they were already gathering there anyway. In fact, the earliest non-biblical document we have of church life is called the Didache, uh, which, among other things, details morning, midday, and evening prayers that the whole global church prayed together. A shared daily prayer rhythm was the assumption in the church for centuries, and then Rome fell. And when that happened, the church, for the first time in history, buddied up with power and lost its saltiness in the language of Jesus. And at about that same time, the church lost its taste for prayer. And so the first monasteries were actually founded just to continue the common prayer life of the church. Because the church became diluted, and so a few people were just like, no, no, let's keep the potency of this thing alive. The original monks were just people continuing to live the way the early church lived for centuries. To summarize, the church prayed like a band of wild, unruly monks. And when we pray, when we express love to God, then the power of God, more or less, just accidentally gets thrown in. If you don't believe me, then just do this as a homework assignment. Read the book of Acts, uh, which is the history book of the early church, and pay attention to every reference, highlight every reference to as they were going to the place of prayer, and then watch what happens after that. It's always this commitment to prayer gets tied to an outpouring of the power of God. Let me just show you, just from the references we made before, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John exercise the first miraculous healing after the resurrection on their way to midday prayers. Acts chapter 10, Peter receives a vision that the gospel is actually for the whole world, not just the Jewish people, during his midday prayers. Acts chapter four, the foundations of the temple shook in response to the church's ordinary prayer gathering. So, for those keeping score, the early church had a higher value on gathering together to pray than the modern church does, and the early church had a higher concentration of the Spirit's power than the modern church does. Here is the whole thing I'm getting at from every different angle I can possibly approach it. My suspicion is that when the Apostle Paul, who lived by a three times a day daily prayer (laughs) rhythm, Wrote, pray without ceasing. He had something much more concrete in mind than we often give him credit for. He meant, commit yourselves to fidelity. Pray like monks. And as you do, love and power will bloom together within you like a band of wild, unruly monks. So, I am inviting you to recover one of the church's most historic practices, which has been forgotten in our time, and that is a daily prayer rhythm of morning, midday, and evening prayer. I'm inviting you as a church to begin in the morning praying the Lord's Prayer. Now, this is literally the way Jesus taught his followers to pray, and it is the one way that we know with 100% historical accuracy that the early church prayed regularly. So just take a minute and imagine praying the Lord's Prayer in the morning. What does your morning routine look like right now? Wake up as late as possible to still get to work on time. Maybe if you're ambitious, do something about your body. (laughs) And then caffeinate yourself so that you're conscious by the time you get to the office and spend your whole morning commute varying levels of annoyed with everyone else that's trying to do the same thing you're doing, right? This is an invitation to start your day with God, and it is not about a personality type. It's about love. I am yet to find a man or woman of faith throughout history who made a significant mark for the kingdom of God that did not begin every day in communion with Jesus. It's not about a personality type. It's about love. Mark chapter 1, Jesus himself, we get a peek into his prayer life. It says, early in the morning before the sun rose, Jesus went off into the wilderness to pray. I read that verse when I was 13 and just thought, I want to discover how to pray like Jesus prayed. And so I would open my Bible to Mark chapter 1 every night and put it on top of my alarm clock so that when it went off and I was like reaching for it, that I would touch the Bible and I would remember, I could pray like Jesus prayed. But I was 13, so most of the time I moved it to the side and hit the snooze But I was trying. So I just want to humbly suggest a new routine for you uh, to pray like Jesus taught us. And when I say pray the Lord's Prayer, I'm not advocating that you recite the words of Jesus as if they're a script. I mean, allow these words to thematically move you through a very personal conversation with God. Something like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then just begin to remember who God is, the one relentless in love the one whose mercy always outruns anger, the one who's victorious in this world so I can live today without fear. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then think of friends outside of relationship with Jesus, of injustices in our city and our world, of broken situations, of emotions that are out of balance within your internal world. Anywhere and everywhere you see God's kingdom of peace and love lacking, invite it to come. Give us today our daily bread. The Psalms call self sufficiency the bread of anxious toil. So here's the antidote to anxiety prayer. I and mean, could a life rooted in prayer actually be the cure to a whole hemisphere crippled by anxiety? Turn prayer into your first instinct and find out. And I mean prayer about anything and everything. It is so freeing that right in the middle of a prayer about kingdom come and deliverance from an enemy, Jesus talks about something as common as today's bread. Now, I can keep going, but I think you get the point. And look, this is not a massive shift. You can do this in 30 seconds or you can do it in an hour. It doesn't matter. This is not about performance. It's about fidelity. It's about love. It's about redirecting your heart and mind at the beginning of the day to say, God, before anything else, I want to walk into today in loving communion with you. Now, we've created resources to help you with this. All you need to do is say yes to the invitation. And then as you move through the day to at midday, pray the Jesus Creed. The Jesus Creed is a term that I'm borrowing from the theologian Scott McKnight for this prayer that we know from history. Jesus stopped to pray twice every day. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. For that to become the theme that reframes our afternoons. Now, I want you to imagine this, so just please indulge me. I mean, we're stuck in this room together, so just indulge me for a minute. And, And just in your imagination... Go to yourself in the middle of a workday. Whether for you that means you're at a desk or you're driving a truck or you're on a film set or you're in a classroom or you're in a living room or you're at a coffee shop or whatever, mid-workday, you escape the flow of the workday for just a minute or two. And that could be a minute of contemplative silence at your desk, it could be a walk around the block outside, right outside your building. It could just be a holy stall in the restroom. (laughs) But you're escaping because you know a secret. You know the secret that this kingdom that everyone else is so feverishly building, the one that people are pounding cup after cup of caffeine just to will my mind to focus for a couple of more hours, it's not the one that's going to last. It's not the one that's going to stand after all of the others. And so you steal away because you know that secret. But you also steal away because you have to. You have to or else you'll forget that secret. You will start believing the subtle lie that this temporary thing is an ultimate one and that you are the sum total of all of your doing and producing. And so you need to redirect your affections and your thoughts and your labor, the very center of your being. How would you live differently Monday through Friday if you stopped just for a minute or two in the middle of the day to say, Jesus, Jesus, you have my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. Jesus, let me live and love this afternoon as you would. There's this beautiful, memorable account in Luke chapter 10 of Jesus at the home of Mary and Martha, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him, and Martha's buzzing around doing everything that's gotta get done, and then Jesus invites Martha to stop, and just to come and be with him. And that's not because the work is bad, it's because love grows cold if it does not leave time for uninterrupted, agenda-free presence. And he says to her, Martha, you're busy with many things, but only one thing is needed. This is and always has been about fidelity. So we've created resources to help you with this. All you need to do is say yes to the invitation. And then in the evening, to pray gratitude. Because far too often we litter our apartments and our dinner tables and our relationships with the leftovers from the day. We carry the events of our everyday home with us, not because we want to, but we do. And what if instead of spending your commute home, stewing on that one unpleasant interaction or planning how you're gonna handle that situation tomorrow, or wishing you had gotten more done, you just held a pole on the subway and recounted all of the things that God has given you to be grateful for from today. During the Jewish Passover, they always sing this song called Dayinu, And traditionally, Dainu means it would have been enough. But I think a more modern translation of this might be, thank you, God, for overdoing it. (laughs) So to pray Dainu sounds like this. God, lunch today would have been enough, but you provided me with the resources to choose the type of food I wanted to eat. And you know God, lunch of my choice would have been enough, but you made a world full of flavor and spice and culture so that lunch isn't just fuel, it's actually delight. And God, lunch that that was both of my choice and delight would have been enough, and yet you gave me a coworker to sit across the table from me and to share conversation with another human being. Thank you, God, on my lunch hour today for overdoing it. That's Dainu. And you can do that in 30 seconds or 30 minutes, but that's how we pray gratitude. This is such a small, manageable shift in your life that will bear extraordinary fruit, and all you need to do is say yes to the invitation. What if we began to litter our apartments and our dinner tables and our relationships with the fruit of the Spirit instead of the leftovers from the day? See, look, I'm not trying to invite you to some new innovative idea that I've had. I'm just inviting you to start praying like Jesus prayed. To pray as those who got closest to him kept on praying. To pray like the church prayed at first and to pray the way that the church has tragically forgotten. So how do we do that? Well, it's actually really easy. All you need to do is go to tgcwilliamsburg.com prayer. Sign up for a timeshare and just get three of your friends to sign up. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You actually do need to go to this URL address and you can sign up. And I would, with total sincerity, I would strongly suggest this to you, that you take out your device right now and you sign up and you put three alerts on your phone or, or three alarms on your phone for the same time every day to remind you because this is going to take a lot of reminding and everything you need, info, resources, a way to sign up, troubleshooting technical issues, frequently asked questions, whatever, it's all on the website. So just go to the website. Now a few important logistical details that I wanna make you aware of because I'm with total sincerity inviting you to live by a shared rhythm of prayer as a church. So a few details I just wanna make you uh, aware of. First, you are signing up to receive email notifications with links to resources that will guide you through each of those three prayers. Monday through Friday, and they'll show up in your inbox at 7 a.m., 1 p.m., and 7 p.m. Now, it's just five days a week. We've also created a weekend prayer journaling practice. If you're interested in that, it's on the website. You can check it out. All of those resources are also available as PDF if you just are a person that loves paper and you want to print it off. We might even have a few of them in the back. Yeah, we have a few in the back already printed off if you love paper and don't have a printer, which is a lifestyle issue for you. But, but we've, we've solved that. <laughs> the point is not to pray exactly at 7 a.m., 1 p.m., and 7 p.m. every day. I know that everyone's schedule is different. And some of you don't even have a consistent daily schedule, so the question you need to ask yourself is, what is morning, midday, and evening for me today? And then pray at those times and let these resources guide you. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to spiritual formation, so there is so much freedom to make this your own. But there's also wisdom in creating a new habit by sticking to a disciplined plan. And then once it has become a habit, to then begin exploring the free space and modifying it to fit my personality, my spiritual pathways, and my daily routines. So we're also putting out a podcast midweek this week just for practical tips and guidance on how to live this daily prayer rhythm. In other words, we are doing the very best we possibly can as those leading this church to equip you with everything you need because we actually believe that praying like wild monks can deeply transform you and the world around you. And so all you need to do is say yes to that invitation. And it's so important that we live this. We don't just romanticize the way the church used to be at one point in the past because as we're pretty fond of saying around here, prayer is more practice than it is theory. Scott McKnight says the same thing this way. The lessons Jesus gave his followers on prayer are many, but they are learned mostly by praying and not by reading a textbook about prayer. So the infomercial part of the sermon is done. I just want to land this way. Here's the part that you cannot miss. Here's the bit that holds this whole thing together and actually gives it life, is that this has absolutely nothing to do with legalism and absolutely everything to do with love. Prayer will not make God love you anymore. That's not possible. Remember, his posture towards you is, I already forgive you, I'll never stop loving you but this has everything to do with love because this is an invitation to order your day according to intimacy with God, to keep him as your first love, to choose fidelity. Jesus lived according to a daily rhythm of prayer in a world without iPhones, in a world before even there was a clock. That means that for Jesus and his earliest followers, the way they marked the passage of time was by communion with God. Everything happened a certain distance from the last time I sat in prayer and before the next time I will sit in prayer. This was the anchor that held their whole day together. What is the anchor that your day is ordered around right now? Is it your work schedule or your inbox or your meals the next time I can escape into indulgence is it your phone and the notifications that are coming in is it your upcoming travel plans what is the anchor that orders your daily life because whatever is at the center for you you owe it to yourself to take a long hard look at this question is that making me whole does it love me or does it want to control me is it concerned for my deepest well being or is it trying to sell me something? Is it shaping me into the best version of myself or is it frothing up my selfishness? Is it leaving me alive or exhausted? Whatever's at the center for you defines you and forms you into its image. So is the way you're doing it right now making you whole? And what if at the center of your everyday you place communion with a God who personifies love? If you started your day by dreaming with him, dreams as big as kingdom come and as small as daily bread, and you slipped away at midday to say, every force is vying for my attention and my affection, but you, Jesus, have my heart. Who you say I am when you look me in the eye, that is who I am. And you sat in a subway car on the way home recounting the magnificent and the minuscule ways that you saw the kingdom of God pierce the darkness of this world like a little pinhole of light. What if your day belonged to a God who loves you without needing to control you, whose chief concern was your deepest well-being, who is gently shaping you into the very best version of yourself and who breathes into your exhaustion with life? What if fidelity to Jesus is everything and the way to choose it is as simple as prayer? This is not an invitation into a more disciplined prayer life. It is a call to a quiet kind of rebellion, a free choice to begin living by a different order of loves, marching to a different beat in the, in the procession of a different king. So let's land where we started. Um, can we just go to the next slide? You guys remember this guy? Gorgeous man, horrible name. So these 48 refugees had this dream worth giving their whole lives to, but their very best efforts couldn't cut it. And so they said, why don't we just start praying like monks? And it did not take long until the lives of some of those praying were met by invitations from God to do something crazy, to go here or go there to this village or city or tribe. And these refugees turned into monks, became missionaries. And for everyone that went out, one of those 32 homes would commit to financially support them and pray for them around the clock. And a place that set out to make a corner of heaven on earth actually became the home base for sending heaven to every corner of the earth. Five years in to that 24-7 prayer movement, this refugee village of 32 homes had accidentally launched the greatest missions movement in world history to this day. That's not hyperbole, that is historical fact. And how did they do it? They realized that they couldn't do it, so they prayed. They chose fidelity to Jesus and he saves the best adventures for those who freely choose love. And they started praying like monks of the wildest and most undignified variety and they ended up with a story far beyond their wildest dreams. What was their secret? Right, because Plenty of people ask that. How do we recapture what they had then? What was their secret? Here it is, in the words of Zinzendorf himself. He said this I have one passion. It is He, only He. So, this is not a call to revival. I'm not asking you to stir up something powerful. This is a call to rebellious fidelity to love that gets expressed through prayer, to keep on going to the place of prayer on all the ordinary days, because the kingdom breaks through in those who are fixated on it. And so the question isn't, will you do this tomorrow? The question is, will you be doing this in a month when nothing amazing has happened and you're a bit overwhelmed and your schedule's gotten crazy and you've been traveling? Will you still go to the place of prayer three times a day? Then rebellious fidelity, that's where the real treasures are. So we're gonna respond here in just a moment, And, and I think that some of you will just need to, your response will just be to pull out your phone and sign up for this thing and say yes to a life of loving fidelity with Jesus in this very moment. There will be others of you that need to come up and fall on your knees and surrender on these rugs just like that woman did when she was met with the love of Jesus that stood her up on her feet. There will be others of you that need to dance with joy before a God this good who offers love this free. And some of you probably just need to join your voices to that original band of wild monks and say, teach me to pray, Lord. Teach me to pray. Because that's better than anything I've got. I want that. So it doesn't actually matter if this is your very first time here or if you're helping lead the service. This is an invitation that is for all of us. So first-timer, leader, everyone in between, let's respond personally to whatever God's doing in us first. Is that all right? Great. Let's stand together. Um, I'm going to read this prayer over you from the poet Ted Loder as an invitation to response, and then I'm going to get out of the way. If our prayer ministry would just go ahead and come up. We've got people that would love to pray for you or with you if there's anything you'd like prayer about. And of course, the room is open and free if you'd like to come and just have a bit of space as you respond to God. Now just receive these words as your prayer. Assume whatever posture is an honest way of you for giving your attention to God. Holy One, There's something I wanted to tell you, but there have been errands to run, bills to pay, arrangements to make, meetings to attend, friends to entertain, washing to do. And I forget what it is I wanted to say to you. And mostly I forget what I'm about or why. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Eternal one, there's something I wanted to tell you But my mind races with worrying and watching, with weighing and planning, with rutted slights and pothole grievances, with leaky dreams and leaky plumbing and leaky relationships that I keep trying to plug up. But my attention is preoccupied with loneliness, with doubt, with things I covet. And I forget what it is I want to say to you, or how to say it honestly, or how to do much of anything. Oh God, don't forget me, please. For the sake of Jesus Christ. Almighty One, there's something I wanted to ask you, but I stumble along the edge of a nameless rage haunted by a hundred floating fears of war, of losing my job, of failing, of getting sick and old, of having loved ones die, of dying, and I forget the real question I wanted to ask, and I forget to listen anyway because you seem so unreal and far away, and I forget what it is I have forgotten. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father in heaven, perhaps you've already heard what I wanted to tell you. What I wanted to ask in my blundering way is don't give up on me. Don't become too sad about me. But laugh with me and try again with me, and I will with you too. Oh, Father in heaven, perhaps you've already heard what I wanted to tell you. What I wanted to ask is forgive me, heal me, increase my courage, please. And renew in me a little of love and faith and a sense of confidence and a vision of what it might mean to live as though you were real and I mattered and everyone was sister and brother. What I wanted to ask is for peace enough to want to work for more and joy enough to share and awareness that is keen enough to sense your presence here, now, there, then, always. Amen. Respond as you feel led. Gemma will come in a few minutes and lead us to the table.